Hey guys, uh, it's good to be back, um, and also in your new building, right? The Verdi Club. This y'all were already lit, but now y'all are like lit. You know what I mean? Um, but I, it's funny being in spaces like a club. Um, you know, depending on your family of origin, uh, can almost feel like why are you going to church in a club? Right? It's almost this like villainization of the space. But man, uh, I, I really do feel like today uh, the Lord kind of put uh, a, a very interesting, like, last-minute word uh, about clubs. So I'm going to mention that in a little bit. But uh, my my family is also here. Uh, you know, my brother and uh, sister-in-law are here. My mom is also here. So yeah. So it's uh, thank you for just being a, a place that can host us as well. But. Um, yeah, like I said, I, I, I think I said this last year, but uh, I think Patty and I have definitely had like a friend crush on on Mickey and Krista because uh, Mickey is frustratingly good at everything he does. So he's like, oh, yeah, nine out of ten of my sermons are bad. No, they're not. Are you kidding me? Like I listen to this guy like as my ASMR, you know. So I'm like, man, the first first of all, he's a rapper. He's a preacher, he's a singer, and then, you know, he just wrecks my soul every time. So, um, but I, I, I really want to honor them uh, continuously. I think you guys have a gift in them. Uh, but also, you as a community are a gift to us. Um, you know, our, our church, Capital Collective Church, which, you know, we're babies. We were just birthed this past year. Um, we've been gifted by your presence. Uh, you, you don't know how much you guys also mean to us. Um, I think not again, not just your, you know, sexy social media presence, uh, but really like your essence and your presence is so, so needed. Um, and, uh, again, traversing the waters of be- as being rebels and runaways, um, there is a special place in the kingdom for you. So, um, I did want to, this was, this was actually kind of a, a last minute thing. Uh, but have you ever, you guys ever heard of the, uh, um, the spiritual practice of Targums. Targum? Yeah? No? All right. So, um, you know, it was funny as we were reflecting on Psalm 23, uh, both in the song, but also when Mickey uh, shared the psalm. Um, but I actually want to invite you guys into a process called a Targum. And what's beautiful about it is, uh, you know, in kind of the desert fathers and mothers uh, era, it was a way for them to preserve the scriptures and pass them on uh, to generations to come. And especially at a time in history where uh, this, the holy scriptures were under attack, where even translating it was also uh, a bit of a farce and a bit of a far cry. And I think there's a moment right now in which uh, a lot of the context in which we live, uh, the scriptures don't have this sense of uh, uh, reverence that, uh, you know, oftentimes uh, we should uphold. Uh, but there's a reason for that because of the ways that the scriptures have been weaponized, especially in our culture. Um, and actually, every single one of you can write a Targum. And uh, take, for example, Psalm 23. And, uh, you know, I, I want you guys, maybe even if you don't walk away with anything else uh, today, uh, do the practice of a Targum this week. Take a passage and just put your translation on it. You know, if, you don't, if you're aware of the message version by Eugene Peterson, it's basically a whole big old Targum. 
It was Eugene's way of being able to absorb and breathe in the words of God and to breathe out the meaning and hermeneutic in his own life. So I wanted to share my Psalm 23 targum with you. This wasn't planned. Um, it says this, My Adonai is like a shepherd. I'm like a sheep in his care with everything I could ever need. He knows when I need to stop and smell the grass and take in the waters that replenish my feeble legs. He breathes life back into the depth of my lungs. He allows me to share in the assurance of the path he's pioneered. By his side, we venture through everything, and I mean everything. The gripping fear and dread of life. But his loving hand is always holding me. I look up and his guidance embraces me. I eat beyond my satisfaction with him. And I mean it like buffet style, straight up. Even my enemies have a placard and a chair at our dinners. He lifts me up beyond honor. It's indubitably overwhelming. I used to find myself running away from a shadow. But now it's the furious cycle of warmth and forgiveness that outruns me every minute that I breathe. But it's that cycle that gave me the key to my forever home. Home with my shepherd. Home with my Adonai. I want to pray that over you right now. Because there's going to be some things that we talk about today that might press up against your comfortability. And that's okay. I think for me, it presses up against my comfortability. But to remember that beneath the challenge, even the prophetic words of scripture, lies the shepherd that so desires to bring you home with him forever. Lord, we, we pray for 99 right now. We pray that we are a people that receive you as a shepherd that know that even when we were still sinners, you died for us. Very rarely will someone die for someone who's good or someone who is easy to die for or Beyonce. I don't know, maybe taking a bullet for Beyonce. That's probably a no-brainer. But to take a bullet for the very person who harbored so much abuse against you, Lord, that's a, that's a tough one. I pray that we are a people that confuse the logic of the humankind today. Let 99 be truly rebellious against the culture that they live in. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So today we're going to talk about El Shaddai. The name of God being El Shaddai. And El Shaddai... To be honest, the first time, uh, you know, when M Mickey and I were talking about it, and he sent me kind of the list of names that you're, you'll be walking through. El Shaddai just made me laugh. That's why I picked it, because I think about that kind of like cheesy 90s song. El Shaddai. You know, and I don't even know how the rest goes. Um, but, uh, but El Shaddai, right, it, it's, uh, it, it, it wasn't used in Scripture often. Uh, it was actually mentioned only seven times in Scripture. And what we're actually going to do is we're going to be kind of walking and traversing through the waters of two specific passages that, one, uh, El Shaddai is very present, obviously present. It's used. That phrase is used. That name is used. And another passage where it's not necessarily named, but 
Oh, you could feel it. And uh, in Genesis 17, we'll, we'll turn there. We'll read together. I got this, uh, this Bible that they spelt our name wrong. Our, uh, <laughs> our church, like, dedicated this Bible to us. And I was like, oh, this is so beautiful. And then, you know, immediately I noticed my name is spelt wrong. And I'm like, <laughs> well, that was nice. Uh, but, you know, as a way to pay homage to them, uh, if they're watching this too, right? They put two T's instead of one T, Mata. I'm like, no, come on, dude. Put some respect on my name. (laughs) So let's read Genesis 17 together. Verse 1. When Abram was 99 years. Come on. Come on, somebody. Oh, my goodness. Like, if that's not a prophetic word for you, I don't know what is. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will take my covenant between me and you, and you will greatly increase in your numbers. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I've made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. To be your God And the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And I will be their God. You know, 13 years took place since Abram's last recorded word from the Lord. Abram lived a full and very complicated life. Imagine, this is, he's 99 years old when he receives this specific word from God. You know, life since Haran was kind of a mess 13 years ago. Right before this, in chapter 16, we see the story of Hagar and Ishmael. And uh, my wife's going to be able to kind of just pray through some time uh, traversing through that passage later. But, you know, it's safe to say that Abram lived a life where there was so much to celebrate, but there was so much to be ashamed of. You know, Abram, the name actually means the, uh, the father is exalted, right? So Abram, imagine you have this name, the father is exalted. You're kind of feeling some pep in your step, right? You're feeling pretty good about yourself. You're feeling good about yourself. And then all of a sudden, you don't live up to your name. That life is full of disappointment And you do some things that you never thought you would ever do. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. You know, the exaltation was never supposed to stop in the individual. His God was always meant to be the God of the nations, which is what Abraham means. Father of the nations. You know, for Abram... His tunnel vision view was God was the God of Israel. But actually, God knew, 
I'm not just going to be the God of Israel. I'm going to be the God of nations. In 1963, when Motown was reaching new heights of musical and cultural influence, not only in the black community, but now to the courageous, curious outside of that realm, Valerie Simpson met Nick Ashford in a church of all places. The two of them, in their own right, were navigating the waters of maintaining their fidelity to faith, but also traversing the waters of their creativity in music, and specifically Motown. Valerie was part of a touring gospel choir, and Nick was a struggling artist, dancer, and songwriter. You know, Motown came from Detroit, and having established new headquarters in 1963 in NYC, There was artistic opportunity right here in that city. You know, Valerie, it was interesting. She noticed Nick uh, found his home in a makeshift tent on the perimeter of Central Park. He He was houseless. As she saw his face through the crowd in a performance at a club one night, she couldn't help but feel pulled to his presence. As they struck an artistic relationship, she realized that Nick had way too many songs to count. You know, what's interesting is one of the gospel choir leaders noticing and finding out that these individuals, part of the choir, that they were performing in clubs in the evening. He said, gospel has no place in the club. But what's interesting is Valerie responded to him that, If the gospel were not in the club, I would have never found Nick Ashford. Nick one day had a song idea to bounce off of Valerie in a session in the Motown studio. And the people that decided to show up at the studio this day were the Temptations and of all people, Marvin Gaye. Two names that are kind of a big deal. Nick was in dire straits one day feeling his efforts would never be enough. As he looked out in the skyline of New York City, he realized that they looked like mountains, reminding him of his home in Michigan. And as he pulled Valerie aside, he said, I think I have a song. He starts to say these following words. Ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no valley low enough. Ain't no river high enough, baby. To keep me from getting to you, babe. Come on, come on. No, I'm saying that. Don't worry. (laughs) Nick Ashford, finding a home and a tent on the perimeter, not even in Central Park, on the perimeter of Central Park, was discovered by Valerie. And that fateful day, his struggle of not experiencing enough became not just enough, but more than enough. My first idea is that God is not enough. And that might be kind of a controversial statement, right? Especially as last week, y'all, y'all talked about Jaira, right? And we know the song, Jaira, you are enough. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's get it. Uh, hey, hey. Uh. But what's interesting is, you know, God is actually not enough. God never wanted to just be enough. You know, for us, the consequence of settling for enough is that we tend to view God as just enough, and then we view ourselves as 
will never be just enough. Imagine if Yahweh was a God who just met our expectations. Imagine. Imagine if that was the height of our view of the Holy One, of the One who traversed through the waters of the unknown, who created you in your inmost being. Imagine if that was the height of how God was God. Some, for some of us, actually, probably for most of us, we don't have to imagine that's how our life is dictated. That El Shaddai, for us, is just the God who's enough, who meets the minimum requirements, who meets my minimum expectations. Any uh, Enneagram people in the room, right? I'm in Enneagram 3, so success, like, is everything to me, Right? And for me, uh, success for a long time meant if my expectations went exactly the way that I saw. And uh, for me, you know, that was, the, that was the extent of my own personal blessing is if success was achieved. But what's interesting, though, is and probably frustrating for a lot of maybe any threes in the room. Are you, come on, look, come on, somebody. Yeah. So for the threes in the room, we know that if something actually exceeds our expectations and goes well in spite of us, right? Um, a healthy three will be like, great. I developed a really great team. And, you know, I brought a lot of people in with me in the success. An unhealthy three would be like, what? What's wrong with me? Like, I couldn't be there, you know, like, even for us to not be at our church right now and, you know, having to surrender uh, the responsibility of the church to Jesus, right, uh, but also <laughs> to our people, it's a really challenging thing, especially for a three. And we're getting all these texts of, oh, it was amazing. It was, uh, they're three hours behind, or, uh, ahead, right? So, uh, but yeah, it was amazing. You know, there was an anointing on uh, the, the speaker. I was like, dude, he's like 10 years my minor. Like, are you kidding me? You got a problem with me? Which no one is saying, right? But that's when we're doomed to just meet expectations, Right? You know, it's interesting. It's not so much that God isn't enough. It's that he does not settle with the bare minimum. A.W. Tozer says this. God is so vastly wonderful, so utterly and completely delightful, that he can, without anything other than himself, meet, and get this, overflow the deepest demands of our total nature, mysterious and deep as that nature is. As my wife drops her phone. No, it's all right. You know, what's interesting, right, is that oftentimes in our pursuit for God, in our pursuit for the many names of God and the very character of God and the presence of our God, is that we're disappointed because he doesn't meet our expectations. We're also disappointed because in our conduct, we know we fall short. But what's really interesting is this. In Genesis 17, you'll read this, is, is actually, you'll see this phrase often used, uh, in, in, especially in uh, the Hebrew scriptures, is that uh, he calls for us to be blameless. He tells Abram, again, Abram who just screwed up, he's like, be blameless. 
That's your end of the covenant. Now, for us in our hermeneutic of that today, we're thinking, all right, well, I can't make mistakes. I got to be blameless. I can't have anything on me. There can't be a case against me, right? But that word blameless it actually comes from this Hebrew term tamim. And, uh, you know, what's actually really interesting is last year uh, I talked about this idea of shalom, right? And that being peace. But actually the other realm of shalom is actually tamim, wholeness. And it was very, very common in Jewish tradition for people to come up to one another and say, hey, shalom, how is your tamim? How is your wholeness? So instead of asking, hey, how are you doing? Or, hey, like, did you mess up this week? Kind of like a confessional behind a mesh wall, right? (laughs) Instead of that, it was, hey, are you being made complete by God today? How is your recognition of your wholeness? You know, for us... It's less about us, and it's so much more about him. Can we talk about circumcision real quick? <laughs> Don't worry, I won't talk about the biological aspect of circumcision, because y'all know, if you, if you want to, I mean, we could do that. Um, I was circumcised much later in life. Um, it's probably more, <laughs> more than you asked for. You could talk to my mom about that. She's in the audience. I do remember everything. Um, you know, circumcision was a practice uh, that, again, was covenantal in nature. And it was a way to actually provide the sense of whole dedication or a set of being a set apart from those around them. And it was almost like a, the Jewish call to their end of the bargain to devote their entire selves to Yahweh. You know, it's interesting, though, is practices are simply illuminations of principles. And that's what we see in the New Testament as well. You know, if the practices are not done wholeheartedly, they are null and void. So rather than asking, like the rich young ruler did, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We ought to be asking, who am I being invited to become? You know, it's interesting is if we, if we approach God as the one who meets the minimum requirements, that's what we expect out of ourselves. I did the practices. I got baptized. I said confessional. I, you know, I, I, I said prophetic words. I engaged in my gifting of the Holy Spirit, right? Then we, then we kind of just, we check off the boxes as opposed to what if there's so much more I'm being invited to, Right? What if even through the flaws and the very, very tangible sin in my life, I'm being invited to something else? That's what Abraham's conversation with God God was in this situation. This was crucial. And this is crucial not just for the Jews, but the Gentile hermeneutic of the promise of Abraham's offspring. Remember, It wasn't just the nations of Israel. It was actually supposed to be every single nation. Here's what enough, God being enough, would look like. The God of Israel. But God didn't just want to be the God of Israel. 
but he wanted to be the son of man. God isn't just enough. He's much more than that. El Shaddai isn't just meeting the minimum requirements. He's much more than that. And we'll come in a landing with this last idea. In Acts chapter 17, let's read this together. Y'all with me? In Acts chapter 17, and this is the, at the point in the Apostle Paul's life where he is saturating the gospel through all of these different nations. And he just left the shores of Berea. And right before that, he was in Thessaloniki. And uh, those two cities were very vast different experiences. Thessaloniki, like, dragged him all around the city, and they did not want to hear what he had to say. Berea, uh, it was a lot of smart cookies. And they took what Paul had to say, and they actually discerned it for themselves and actually studied out the scriptures themselves to be able to discern what Paul was saying was true. And then now he's now in Athens, the grandiose Athens, the birth of the Olympic Games, right? The pantheon of gods. So imagine what Paul must be feeling as he's approaching this beautiful, grandiose city. You know, as he walks into the gates of this pearly city, he sees temples and structures of these gods that were foreign to him, right? It's almost like, think about walking into an intimidating city like, I don't know, New York City. It's like you feel like a small fry in a big vat, right? And it's crazy, right? Because you're just on anticipation of just getting boiled alive, right? Yeah, let's take that analogy even further and deeper. But, you know, as Paul approaches a city, this is one of the beautiful things about Paul and the things that you almost get to uncover and discover the more you read in the scriptures is that Paul was actually a, a pretty well-rounded individual even in his uh, dichotomy and the way that he thought. So as he walked through, he uh, encountered two specific kind of philosophers. One were Stoics and the other ones uh, were uh, more about pleasure, right? Epicureans. So what's interesting is as he approaches them, they invite him into this place called the Areopagus, right? And as he walks into the Areopagus, they're talking about the newest and latest ideas. And as he's just encountering them, he's sharing about Jesus, he sees this inscription and this kind of structure. It was kind of small, but it says to an unknown God. So imagine you're walking into an environment where there's Zeus, there's Athena, there's all of these different individual, uh, uh, very known gods. And then all of a sudden, these know-it-alls actually have this inscription to an unknown god. The very environment that I think a lot of us probably would have written off is the very environment that was actually searching for God in a way that maybe some of us would have never known. This was Paul's response to them. Verse 22 in Acts chapter 17. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. 
So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. And granted, he wasn't being offensive here. I think oftentimes we could read that and be like, why would you call someone ignorant? Like, that's never like a nice thing to say. No, he was like, actually, I want to complete. I want to make whole your psyche. The very things that you want to be completed. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all of the nations. Isn't that cool? That they should inhabit the whole entire earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Isn't that so cool? God is more than enough. Brennan Manning, who was a Catholic priest and then a drunkard and then a Catholic priest again and then a drunkard again and then an adulterer and then a Catholic priest again and then a nonprofit organization leader and then an author. That was his life. He says this. No man can adequately reach and explain a single word of God with all of his words. You know, oftentimes we try to explain God with our words and even his words. And we would adequately be able to do that if God was enough. But God is more than enough, isn't he? El Shaddai is much more than that, right? He overflows, There are no words in the English language, in Greek, in Hebrew, in Tagalog, in Mandarin, in Espanol. There are no words ever that could adequately describe and muster up who God actually is. You know, the fruit seeing him as El Shaddai as more than enough is our expectations will never be met. They will always be exceeded. You know, here's a vision for us, and I think here's why Acts 17 is so integral to our faith. Most of us in here, I don't want to assume, but most of us in here are not Jewish, right? That's not our story. Maybe if you do 23andMe, you'll find that, I don't know, maybe you have some, you have some uh, you know, chutzpah in your life. Maybe not. But here's why this is so significant. Is El Shaddai, the God who promised Abraham to be the father of nations? That was a promise for us too. That his promise so bled out of a tradition that was not ours. That had you and I in mind. This kind of reverence for God only elevates our need to discover the tradition of our Jewish brothers and sisters. 
We settle for enough when we don't acknowledge or appreciate the radical, almighty power of God who judges the pantheon of gods, who only carry worshipers temporarily anyways. Which begs the question for all of us, before we found El Shaddai, we all have to admit we worship something and someone beyond us. I think for us who maybe have a harder time with the spiritual realm might actually have the uh, improper belief that the only God we ever worshipped was Yahweh. When in reality, oftentimes, we didn't even know that we worshipped other gods before him. And maybe some of us erected ourselves as a God. And that's, you know, that's real. But the spiritual realm shows us that, man, this is why it is so, so good that we worship a God that overflows. In Acts 17, as we see Paul talk about it, you know, what's so crazy, right, is that he uses their poets to illuminate who Yahweh was. He says, some of your own poets have said, Aratus is the poet that he quotes. He kind of uses it as kind of like a diss track as their own, you know, one of their own diss tracks on themselves. He says, we are his offspring. Even your own poets were searching for something that was beyond what they settled for. What did they think was enough? That if I create this beautiful uh, tower or this, uh, this wonderful statue, that that would be enough to the God I have no idea about. When in reality, God was just saying, no, I'm down on one knee. I got this ring for you. I got the house for you. You ever hear Justin Bieber's baby? You know, I buy you anything. I buy you any. You're 13. Like, I never understood that. I was like, dude, you're 13. Like, what can you actually buy me? Granted, he was, you know, he'll be more rich than I ever will be at 13 years old. But you get what I'm saying. But there's this sense of my goodness. No, no, no. El Shaddai, the creator of the universe, was down on one knee saying, look, I don't want to just offer you your needs. I want to offer you the deepest desires you don't even know that's there. So a question for us is, how different would your life look if you reached out to the God who not only desires to father you, but to father you in abundance? You know, the story of the prodigal son resonates with so many of us, right? Maybe some of us, when we came to Jesus, we felt like we squandered the wealth. We felt like we just went out there and, yeah, just like, I don't know, lived lavishly or did whatever we wanted to do. And that we are the prodigal son because we came back to the father, right? But in reality, no, 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 the father was the prodigal father. The word prodigal means lavish, in abundance, in out overflow, in outpouring. When the son came back, all he wanted to do was give him the best. Give him everything. Kill the fattened calf. Let's get this up. Like, let's, you know what I'm saying? Disco ball it up. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's go. We serve, and you're being invited to love an overflowing 
lavish, and prodigal father. How different would your life look if we didn't settle for bare minimum, but we settled for El Shaddai? We're being invited to being made whole. How different would 99 look? And again, I'm not talking numerically. I'm talking about the people in this room. How much more loving would you be? Because I have so much to give. Not because of me, in spite of me, because of El Shaddai. He has so much to give. He can't help himself but be generous. He can't help himself but to love the person that's really, really difficult to love. That grinds your gears. That really cooks your turkey, right? But maybe some of us in in here still feel like the prodigal son. Maybe you feel ashamed to come back. Maybe you feel like, my goodness, I don't deserve to be in the conversation with someone who is so willing to give. I want to invite my wife Patty up just to, again, create a space for us. I need it. And I reckon many of us in here need it too. Hi, everyone. One of the things that I love about this passage um, uh, in Genesis 17, but particularly the passage before, is that God reveals himself as El Shaddai to Abraham and Sarah but he, he first reveals himself in a really special way to Hagar right before this in chapter 16. And, you know, if you don't know who Hagar was, she was actually, again, whenever you read scripture, you think there's so many people in the scriptures who are in such vulnerable situations. And you see just how God shows up for them. But essentially, Abraham and Sarah are trying to conceive a child. They're unable to. And basically, they're like, why don't we just take our servant and she'll have our baby? And then Sarah, like I think any person would feel resentful towards the person having the child when she was promised a child, becomes really resentful and mistreats Hagar. And then we have Hagar who runs out of fear of just not wanting to be mistreated. And her and her son are in the desert and are starving and are thinking, man, this is it. I'm going to die here. And here in this such vulnerable situation, you have God show up and tell her exactly where she is, but promise her a future beyond where she was. And I don't know about you guys, but I feel like it's so easy for me to picture El Shaddai for an Abraham or a Sarah. But it's so hard to picture an, uh, an El Shaddai for a Hagar. You know, for those who feel maybe outside of the promise, maybe who, for those who feel like I'm not the like spiritual superhero that is Abraham and Sarah. But God is the God that sees you. He is the one that sees you literally in the deepest, darkest place where you're just praying for death, where you're just like, I can't, I can't move one more step in front of the other. That is the God that wants to show up for you, whoever you are, wherever you are. And so I just want to take time just to pray and just honor God for who he is and just invite you even to be able to pray a prayer on your own to go, you see me and you have provided for me, not, not just in the past, but you will continue to provide for me.
And so let's just take a minute just to, in yourself, maybe think and pray over what ways has God really shown up for me? How has he allowed himself to see me in even like the deepest, darkest, highs, lows time? So let's take time to pray.